0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there, taking all the oxygen out of the room, and you wanna join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill, in good faith. And before we start, I'd just like to ask for your support. Any amount truly helps us to keep the lights on. It's easy to find us at politicsandreligion.us. It's politicsandreligion.us. Or you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. And that'll really help us continue to have the conversations like the one we're having today with our special guest who is literally halfway around the world. Sadhviji Bhagavati Saraswati is that did I get that right? It's
1: perfect.
0: Oh good. I was nervous about that so thank you.
1: Perfect.
0: Uh, so Sadvi, Sadviji Bhagavati Saraswati PhD is a renowned spiritual leader in India. She is the author of the number one best-selling memoir Hollywood to the Himalayas A Journey of Healing and Transformation which we'll be discussing today and is president of Divine Shakti Foundation, a charitable organization that runs free schools, vocational training programs, and empowerment programs for women and children. She is Secretary General of Global Interfaith WASH Alliance, launched by UNICEF, the first alliance of religious leaders for water, sanitation, and hygiene, and serves on the United Nations Advisory Council on Religion. Sadhviji was also the managing editor for the monumental project of the 11 volume encyclopedia of Hinduism, and is the director of the world famous International Yoga Festival. Originally from Los Angeles and a graduate of Stanford University, Sadhviji has lived at Parmarth Nikitan Rishikesh. Oh gosh, did I get that?
1: (laughs) Perfect, absolutely perfect, (laughs) yes, great. Uh,
0: Which is in the lap of the Himalayas, for 25 years, where she gives spiritual discourses, satsang, and meditation, and leads myriad humanitarian programs. Sadviji, thank you for joining me. It is an honor to be with you. How are you?
1: Corey, it's so wonderful to be together. I'm so happy to be able to join you and your community this morning.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's morning for you. And it's evening for me. We're literally 12. And because of how the time things work there, we're 12 and a half hours apart in terms of our time of day.
1: Yeah, India likes to be distinct. It's the only only place that does half an hour. And then, you know, Nepal is 15 minutes, lest they should be the same. So there's a 15 minute time difference between India and Nepal.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I do notice depending on where we are in our time zone, the sun doesn't necessarily go down at exactly the same time. So that's I, I don't know if I'd like that because it's confusing enough, Eastern and Pacific and mountain and, but um, I do have to say that there, I've had guests on our program where there's been a proverbial encyclopedia of information to go through, uh, but you have a literal encyclopedia of content <laughs> to go through. I have so many questions. So I, I'd like to start this way. Uh, at one point in the book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, You discuss the science of anxiety perfected by many American Jews, which uh, I was telling you before we started, there's so much in your story that really, really resonated with me. And as I was reading some of that, I thought, you must have been in my home. You must have been spying on my actual family the whole time. So in in all seriousness, can you talk about your upbringing and some of what formed you in the first 25 years?
1: Sure. Sure. So you've already given a lot of pieces of it. I grew up in California, in Los Angeles, quite literally in Hollywood or the Hollywood Hills and had really what people from the outside looking in would say was a a perfect life i had a beautiful family i came from a lot of a lot of wealth a lot of opportunity a lot of privilege and ended up going to stanford university where i got a fantastic education and really had all of the things that when we look at someone else's life when we're not privy to the inner workings of it you could say wow she had everything and it's interesting because this equation that we were given all of us and i say not just we as in me and my friends but you and our whole our whole community was really given an equation and i think I think to some extent it's really still there today, which is if you want to be happy in life, if you want to live a good life, a successful life, here's the things that you need. You need to have enough money. You need to get a good education. You need to have good opportunity. You need to get invited to the right parties. You need to look the right way in the right clothing. You need to vacation at the right resort, live in the right area of town. And when we had all of those things, we were what I now call in retrospect, happy by default, As in, well, we must be happy because we've got all of these things, everything is is great. And yet it's only in retrospect that I realize how not happy on deep core levels we were. And I think a lot of that has to do, and I'm sure we'll come back into more of the deeper philosophy of this later in the talk, but I think a lot of it has to do with values and what our culture is telling us we should be looking for in life. And as long as we're being propelled into the having more, getting more, achieving more, earning more, acquiring more model of success and happiness, we're going to keep acquiring more and having more, but not actually having more happiness. We'll have more things, but not the peace, not the joy that we're actually looking for. And that for me was really what was the the situation of so much of, of my youth and not just me, but the people I saw around me, friends of my parents. You know, I mean, these were my friends, parents, you know, people of my generation, as well as, as our parent of our parents' generation, where they were super successful. I went to school with a lot of Hollywood actors and actresses in my class, children of actors and actresses, children of directors, producers, et cetera. And the amount of unhappiness, the amount of drugs and alcohol and marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage that really was the the foundation of that life made me realize at a relatively early age that All of the external success is not actually what gives happiness inside. And for me, on a a deeper personal level, in addition to just that, as Mahatma Gandhi said, what's the point of running so fast when you're running in the wrong direction? So in addition to the being propelled into the wrong direction for happiness and success. I also had experienced a lot of personal struggle, personal trauma. I had been uh, severely sexually abused in early childhood. And then my biological father had actually first simply in a matter of a divorce, but then actually abandoned me. I mean, literally called me when I was eight and said, I never want to see you again. And that trauma ended up leading me as an adolescent, as someone in her early 20s, into what I realized in retrospect, and I realized to some extent at the time as well, was really the very best coping mechanism that I could come up with at the time, which was a very severe eating disorder. And if I could just ingest enough to make me feel full and numb, and then get it out quickly enough to feel free as though somehow the the pain and the trauma and the difficulties could be thrown up along with food. But as as young people struggling, we turn to, to so much. We turn to alcohol, we turn to drugs, we turn to sex, we turn to food, we turn these days to Facebook or whatnot for some way to deal with that. And so that was really what my what my life in the first 25 years was. And it's important just to mention that in the midst of all of this, if you had met me, you would have actually said, this is a really happy young woman. And it's it's really interesting in retrospect because I was not a religious person. I was born in a reformed Jewish community. I was bat mitzvahed but mostly because it was something I did to make my grandparents happy. And we went to synagogue on the first Friday of every month because my grandma wanted to go and it was family services and we went. So I was never I was never really religious. I was also not one of those people who say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And yet, in the midst of all of this I really did have this underlying pervasive sense of happiness and it's it's interesting because I don't know how I was blessed enough to have that in the midst of society that I was brought up with in the midst of the trauma I had faced, a lot of it, of course, was due to the the beautiful, beautiful, amazing man who entered my life and married my mom and became my dad. But I think also a lot of it is is just blessings and grace of having an ability even from early childhood to to access something within that was separate from untouched by that which was going on in the world around me
0: yeah when i looked at the photos that you shared at the end of the book the little girl on that bike, and I just I especially enjoyed seeing the cars parked on the street that I recognized from when I was a little boy, that didn't look like the girl that experienced some of that trauma that you describe in your story. I I would like to read a passage from the book because there's something that at the same time I can't fathom. I, I can't understand at all. Uh, but at the same time also long for uh, this level of humanity and empathy that you express. So here's the passage. I stood up to my knees in mother Ganga. Is that how you say it? Mother Ganga. Yes, perfect. Until the moon was directly overhead, all the while calling forth every image that had ever caused me pain that had caused me to dissociate that had propelled my head into a toilet vomiting. I recalled countless images that had formed the unbearable background of my life. Then in the midst of these images, I saw him, my biological father, Manny. And from this place of imperturbable silence, I saw not a monster, but a troubled man who had made mistakes I saw the violence and the sin he wrought upon me as simply mistakes of this disturbed being. I saw a man now far away who could no longer harm me, whose life was just as haunted by these choices as mine. And I saw a man who loved me despite his inability to express it. I saw a man I could forgive. Oh boy, I I don't understand, but I also like I said, long for that superhuman ability to forgive. could you mm-hmm. could you share because it was just all, part of the reason I read that is because it's that moment when you first put your feet in in mother Ganga as you call it um and, and there was this transformative experience. but I'd also if if you if you're you'd like to speak about that, um what you expressed there
1: sure so yeah forgiveness is obviously one of the greatest greatest things that we struggle with and lack of forgiveness is one of the greatest impediments to actual peace in life and I had certainly never thought I could forgive. I mean, it had never occurred to me. I was at a place where I thought that the highest level I could come to was simply to learn to manage the pain. Like that I could eventually get to a place where what he did, did not permeate every single minute, every single moment of my life, every single thought in my head. That was for me, the goal, that I was no longer going to be a a slave to what he did, that it wasn't going to dictate how I had relationships. It wasn't going to dictate how I thought about myself. It wasn't going to dictate my meals. But the idea that I actually could forgive him was never something that had occurred to me. It was never something that anyone ever would have suggested. I mean, what he did was unspeakable. And as far as the culture I grew up in, unforgivable. What happened when I came here was I was introduced to an entirely new way of thinking about myself, of thinking about life, of thinking about unforgivable actions, which was that my lack of forgiveness was the very thing that was keeping me stuck. My lack of forgiveness was the very reason that I was not going to be able to find an experience and live in joy and peace and freedom. And that forgiveness was not something that I needed to do for him. I had always thought, well, I mean, the only way that you would forgive is if someone came and, you know, threw themselves at your feet and really, really, really repented in just the most tear-filled heart-wrenching sort of way to really make you know that they really, really, really repented what they did, that they felt horrible about it, that they promised that they would never do it again, that they were prepared to make whatever amends. And only then might you even begin to begin to begin to begin to contemplate the idea of forgiveness. And in my case, it actually was the exact opposite. When I saw him for the first time in more than 10 years, my freshman year at Stanford, uh, long story, won't go into it, but we did, we did meet. I was in Colorado for a friend's wedding, which is where he lived. And we had dinner. And the very first thing that he said to me The very first thing he said was, if you are looking for apologies, if you're looking for repentance, you're looking in the wrong place. And so and that was that was repeated in different ways over the many, 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 many years between then and when he eventually passed away a couple of years ago. And so this was not going to be a matter of. He was going to apologize. And yet what I was taught here in such beautiful, beautiful ways was forgiveness is not about him. It's about you. He did what he did because that was part of his karmic drama. He will experience the karmic fruits of that. That is the way that the law of karma works. We are not the karmic police. The universe does not need us to keep reminding it who's do what, who deserves what. You know, we're not we're not the secretaries of the divine universe of who's been bad, who's been good. But there is there's this law of karma. And it it works independent Avas. I'm going to interrupt for just one second because that door is open. Sagar, you did a bankardiji at the bata. Just the the somebody opened the back door and I'm starting to hear sounds coming from oh, there.
0: That is so cool. I, I don't know why it's so thrilling to hear you just go directly into fluent another language fluently. <laughs> that, that's kind of cool. Thanks. <laughs> I may keep that in the recording, by the way. <laughs>
1: yeah, no problem. No problem. So we forgive, not because what someone did was okay, but we forgive because we deserve to be free regardless of what someone did. What someone else did, they did out of their ego, their arrogance, their confusion, their fear, their struggle, their pain. But we deserve to be free regardless of someone else's karmic package. And we cannot be free unless we forgive. And if we don't forgive, we are literally sacrificing our life our freedom on the altar of someone else's ego arrogance ignorance fear confusion greed anger and why would we do that they've already hurt us why would we then take the rest of our lives and offer it up on a plate on the altar of their mistake or their unskillful action or their evil and however we think about it and that for me was this turning point in my awareness about forgiveness and there's there's a beautiful passage in the book that I share prior to giving it to Ganga, when the incredible being who has since become my guru at the the time was just this saffron robed, clad, long haired, long bearded, amazing transmitter of divine energy who I met, who I didn't even know at the time was one of the most revered spiritual leaders in india and in the world at the time i just thought he was this incredible being of of light and divinity and whose presence i found myself and he he said to me he said are you going to take this to the grave
0: yeah
1: and he said you know you're you're waiting for someone to come in and draw the line for you, for someone to come in and say, okay, you can be done now. And he said, no one will. You can carry this to your grave or you can let it go tonight. And that was what led me into the water that night. And so when you ask about that, Ability to forgive, it's not its not an ability that I could tell you I somehow cultivated in some way. It was something that arose out of grace, that when I simply allowed myself to let go of this death grip that I had had on this identity as the one who was the victim, Well, when I let go of that death grip, then suddenly into that space, into that spaciousness, grace flowed. And as grace flowed, my heart opened. And as my heart opened, then everything else became became possible.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that is maybe what struck so deeply into my own conscience or my own heart is that it wasn't just forgiveness or maybe that these were intertwined. It wasn't just the forgiveness, it was the humanity you you saw in this person. Well, that's <laughs> actually. Charlie Charles Mingus the third I should yeah. say this he's a rescue and mm. he was traumatized as a pup we got him when he was about one or two years old um but we are trying to help him remember his own humanity or doggity or something I don't know um uh, no I'm not trying to be flip about this it, 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 well he he's getting better but he um he uh We've had him for a few years, but he really is. You can see that he's traumatized. We only Mm -hmm. know bits and pieces about his first couple of years. Um, There were times when he was just left outside to go hungry and wet and cold. Uh, There were other times where we think he was beaten. Uh, So he has these reactions where we just have to remember this life's experience.
1: It's a nervous system. It's a nervous system that gets primed and impacted and developed and then triggered. And yeah, whether it's a dog or whether it's a human, I mean, we all, we all have that capacity Yeah. to love and therefore to experience pain and trauma. And it's so beautiful that you're reparenting him.
0: <laughs> it's a gift, it's an opportunity. Uh, for us, for all of us that are involved. But yeah, I mean, to getting back to that point, what what struck me so deeply was vesting this person with his humanity, uh, despite, because of, across that uh, trauma uh, that he was responsible for. Now, I want to contrast that uh, with Maybe it's not a contrast that that that's probably not the right way to put it, but there was there was an experience that you relayed, uh, a moment that you relayed where it was still the twenty five or twenty six year old you, and uh, my oldest is only twenty one. So as I was reading this, some of my dad instincts were kicking in, like whoa 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 whoa, hey slow down, hit the brakes, <laughs> and it was a conversation, and and um, I'm going to ask for your coaching on pronunciation, Puja Swamiji.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay, uh, that you had with him at the very beginning of your time there, <laughs> when you you were you were so um, overwhelmed with this new experience, and you knew that you wanted to stay there, and you, you felt connected to the place and to compelled to give back in some way. So you ask if there's anything you can do, and the way that it went back and forth several times, anything he asked, anything, yes. and I'm like, "Oh, stop! Just run away!" You know. <laughs> but finally, he he answered, uh, and you said, "Yes, yes, yes." Uh, do you remember from the book or or your experience what what he said?
1: Oh, of course, it was a a turning point in my life, actually so i
0: had asked him
1: is there anything i can do i felt so blessed and you have to paint the the scene because here we are sitting in his inside room in those days he now has this beautiful beautiful bamboo hut in the garden where he does all of his meeting but at that time he didn't have that and so he had a beautiful garden where in the evenings he would meet or in the daytime of the winter time but this was September it was still really really hot and so he did all of his daytime meetings inside And so we were in his inside meeting room, just the two of us. I knew nothing about Indian culture. I had no idea what the saffron robes meant. I had no idea about vows of celibacy or renunciation. I didn't know any of it. I didn't know that the word Swami means the one who has renounced the world. I didn't know any of this. All I knew was here was this amazing being of light, of love, who had transformed me already in just a couple of days. And so I say, is there anything I can do? And he, about 45 at the time, I was 25, looks at me and says, anything (laughs) and and yeah that's what gets your father instincts going yeah and and I could hear I could hear in my mind my mother's voice saying just stand up and leave but I knew I just knew regardless of what words came out of my mouth I knew that yes I would give him anything whatever he asked for and so I say yes and he then says he says you promise now my mother is like shrieking (laughs) in my brain and she's now joined by my favorite all-time favorite professor Dr. Phil Zimbardo, who was my professor my final year at Stanford. You had to be a senior in order to get into his classes and a psych major. You had to be a senior and a psych major to get into his classes. And he taught a class on the psychology of mind control that was really all about cults and brainwashing. And now my mom is joined in my brain by Phil Zimbardo. And they're both telling me, just stand up, just stand (laughs) up and leave. And I knew. And this takes us back to, you know, what I was speaking about earlier in terms of, regardless of what had happened outside in my life, there was this inner somehow by grace This inner joy, this inner knowing that I wasn't always able to tap into, of course, but that was there. And in that moment, I knew, yes, of course, I promise whatever he asks for, I will do it. And I knew that. And what was interesting was it, it didn't come from a feeling inside of feeling like I was somehow a slave to something. It actually came from a feeling of freedom. So it wasn't a matter of, I don't have a choice. It was a matter of, I've got all of the choices in the world. And the choice that I'm going to make is to give him anything that he wants, anything he asks for. And he then smiles. The intensity of the moment dissipates. And he looks at me and he says, okay, three things. First, I want you to get closer and closer to God every day. Second, I want you to serve the world. You have been blessed with so much. Serve help others, serve the world. And he said, and third, I want you to be happy. He said, give all of your pain, all of your anger, whatever it may be. And he held out his, he wears a like a thin cotton kind of wrap over his uh, robes. And he held it out like this. And he said, just, just give it to me. And it was so extraordinary because in the first 25 years of my life, I really had thought I was for all practical purposes, a body and the body was a, the medium through which I experienced joy and pleasure. It was the medium through which I experienced abuse and trauma. It was the, instrument that i used to get what i wanted it was the instrument that i assumed people wanted to use and to find myself in a situation where everything had been offered and yet none of it was wanted but that what was wanted was for my soul to reach its truth, its height, for my heart to open and for me to really be able to live in the fullest, deepest way possible. And it it touched me so deeply that, wow, This also exists. This also is possible. And it was just, yeah, it was a transformative moment. And in in these days, in these days with so much hurt and scandal around the world of religion, it's a very sacred story for me as well, because it's such a A perfect example of when religion gets it right, what real religious leaders are and the capacity and the power that they have through being that leader to really transform people.
0: There is one little this-worldly ingredient to this story that I really loved how you ended it. If uh, Neil Simon, for example, were to write a perfect uh, Swamiji character, he would end it this way. He said, by the way, can you type?
1: Yes. Yes. By the way, can you type? Yes. Perfect. Yes. You offered, you offered anything. Yeah. By the way, I've got some, I've got some letters that, you know, have come in and I need someone to type up some responses. If you can, you can do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and I was given, I was given, by the way, it's just fun to remember. I of course said yes. I mean, I was a PhD student Yeah. and He was very happy to hear that. And within an hour or two, a baby blue manual typewriter. Now, this wasn't... Yesterday, It was 1996. Nonetheless, like we were already on computers. I was obviously already working on computers through university graduate school. And yet here we are on a manual typewriter with the keys that go, you know, up and yeah. down like this and where you've got to go in with liquid paper on the paper if you make a mistake and actually push the thing back um, many months later, I got upgraded to an electric typewriter, which was a, yeah, a really big thing, um, with its own, you know, eraser ribbon, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the beginning of how my save us started.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's terrific. Now I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you, I think you're the first person, uh, Hindu person that I've had on the program. And frankly, I, I think even in my just life conversations, I, I've been pursuing these conversations just throughout my my life. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. If someone were to ask me about Judaism or what it means to be a Jew or, um, or Christianity now, or being a Christian, uh, I, I was raised observantly Jewish. We went to an Orthodox synagogue, but I became a Christian about 20 years ago. Um, so I, I'd be at least able to give an overview in order to start a conversation. So with that in mind, uh, could you share some of the central tenets of Hinduism or what it means to be Hindu? In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs>
1: sure. So first of all, what's important and interesting to note is that the word Hindu doesn't come anywhere in the Hindu scriptures. And the actual name of the religion to Hindus is Sanatana Dharm. Now, obviously, people use the word Hinduism colloquially as well. It's become sort of the word, but it doesn't It doesn't appear anywhere in the scriptures or in any of the uh, ancient texts at all. It was a name given to the people living in the Indus Valley civilization on the banks of a river called the Sindhu River when the invaders came and discovered people living on the banks of the Sindhu River, but they couldn't pronounce the word S. And so they said Hindu. So Hindu was actually originally used simply to refer geographically to the people living in that valley on the banks of the Sindhu River. The the real name is Dharma. Now, Dharma is a the way of life, the right way, the path. Sanathan means eternal. And so sanathan Dharma is an eternal way of life. And if you, if you study and you look at what those tenets are, nowhere in them Actually, is there any dogma at all? There's nothing in there that says thou shalt worship God in this way. This way is right. That way is not right. Thou shalt ensure that you observe this ritual or that. If you ask 10 people, 10 Hindus, what are the five core tenets of Hinduism? You'll get 10 different answers. You'll have 50 different answers, five from each of them. So. What I would say is that one of the really core tenets is this idea that there is nothing but God, that everything is divine. There's this myth that Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. It is not. It's a religion that believes that the entire universe, the creation is pervaded by the creator. And therefore, everything is divine. And so we pray to plants, to animals. We pray for the atmosphere. We pray for peace to the atmosphere, to the animals, to the plants, to all of creation because it's all seen as divine. And so this idea that life, everything is sacred, is holy, is divine, because it's pervaded by the divine, is a really, really core Hindu tenet. There's also a beautiful aspect of a personal relationship with God. Most Hindus will have something they call an Isht Devta. And Isht Devta refers to like my my personal favorite isn't exactly the right word, but we can use it for lack of a better word in the 30 seconds I've long since gone over. My, My form of the divine that feels the deepest to me the closest to me and so since god is infinite and pervades everything there's really an infinite number of ways to connect with god and so we've got divine incarnations who have appeared on earth in form to whom people may pray whether it's Lord Krishna, Lord Ram, Hanumanji, Shankar Bhagwan, Lord Shiva, or whether it's the tree in your backyard, whether it's your grandmother, whatever it may be, this idea that you can have a personal relationship with God through God in form, is also a very core tenet but it's not the belief that this form is the only aspect of god it's that god pervades all so yeah this form is pervaded by the divine and maybe a you know a slightly different aspect of it so the different forms have different characteristics and we we have this opportunity to connect with one or the other, in a very deep and very personal way. And I think, I mean, there's a lot I could share, but I'll just choose one more. I think another really core component is the emphasis on the divine feminine. There's many, many, many goddesses obviously one goddess, many forms, but many different forms of the mother goddess who are worshiped fully. I mean, it's not that we've got male God up here and then, you know, divine feminine below him in some way. In fact, with all of the physical manifestations of God, there's always a masculine and a feminine. So there's Ram and there's Sita, or actually the way that it's spoken is Sita Ram. There's Krishna and Radha, but it's spoken of as Radha Krishna. Lakshmi, Narayan. Narayan is a name for Vishnu. Shiva and Shakti or Shiva and it. So all of the divine manifestations, the male forms, have a female shakti, the divine feminine, the divine energy that actually makes whatever they do possible. And then, of course, we've got all of the divine goddesses who are worshipped in their own right during two 9-day festivals during the year. So 18 full days of the year are dedicated to just worship of the mother goddess, 9 days in the autumn, 9 days in the spring. So yeah, it's a very very beautiful a very beautiful tradition and lastly to just mention it's not a tradition that converts And so it's not a matter of leave behind that which you were in order to now become Hindu. The teachings are always those that say whatever your religion may be, if you adopt these teachings, you will be a better human being. Whether you are a better Jew or a better Christian or a better Muslim or a better atheist. But if you adopt the tenets, because of course, you know, if you look at like the Ten Commandments, they're not called that. They're called the yum and the niyam or yamas and niyamas, as we tend to say in English. The Ten Commandments, it's all about how you live with nonviolence, with truthfulness without stealing or hoarding. I mean, it, it's, it's the foundation of yoga, actually. And these are really seen as kind of the 10 commandments of a dharmic life. So it's not about conversion. It's much more about touching people's hearts, opening their hearts, connecting them to God by whatever name or form works for them and empowering them then to be instruments of the divine here on earth. There's teachings in Hinduism that are very, very, very similar to the the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi about, oh Lord, make me an instrument of thy mercy. We have a lot of prayers and a lot of teachings that are about, make me an instrument. We say namitta matram. Just, just an instrument in God's hands.
0: There I have so many questions now. <laughs> um, one, just to underscore one of your points, something that you did talk about in the book is that the truth is a magnet. So what struck me as you described your experience is that the proselytization that we see, especially in Christianity, just does not exist. So I was curious, has anyone over the last 25 years of, from from the first 25 years of your life, has anyone been drawn by this truth, magnetized by this, uh, the same truth, this path that you followed the last 25 years?
1: Absolutely. Not in terms of actually moving to India and taking vows of renunciation, but being touched, being inspired, being transformed by it. Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you just one one example. I'll give you two examples. So one was my best friend from fourth grade all the way up through You know, university graduates for women up till today, she's still one of my best friends in the universe. And she and her boyfriend at the time came to visit me in India a few years after I had moved here and were so touched and inspired. And while they were here, They had come in February and of course it hadn't occurred to them that it was cold in February. I think they had just thought it's India. It's going to be hot, (laughs) but it's actually quite cold. And so I was able to give her a bunch of my clothes, but I didn't have anything for her boyfriend. And so Swamiji gave her boyfriend a shawl. And when they finally were married, several years later, they got married, they're Jewish, and so they got married in the Jewish tradition. And the hoppa that was built, the roof of the hoppa under which they got married was Swamiji's shawl. Oh. They, they had been so touched and inspired by him, by being here, that I flew out for the wedding. Puja Swamiji, obviously, was not able to do that, but they wanted to get married under him anyway. And so they, they put the shawl as the roof of the chuppah. Mm -hmm. So that's just one of many, many examples of people who have been very, very deeply touched and drawn. The other example that I would give is my parents, you know, They were so, my mom primarily, my dad has always been much more accepting and embracing and trusting. But my mom was really panicked by the whole thing and vehemently opposed to it on most levels. And yet as the years went by, I remember before they moved from Studio City to Santa Monica, they used to have a, a jacuzzi in their backyard. And I was telling them that, you know, we had been going to South Africa where there was this very, very large uh, ashram in um, in Durban, South Africa, where the Swami, who was the head of the ashram, had an Olympic-sized swimming pool that he had the beautiful Ganga Arti. The ceremony that we perform each night here on the banks of ganga he had the ganga arthi being performed on his olympic sized swimming pool because whenever people would come from india they would bring water from the sacred ganga river and they would put the water into the pool and that it works kind of homeopathically where even a small amount has that power to transform the entire swimming pool into Ganga. And so I was just sharing that with my parents. And my mom said, oh, she said, oh, she said, do you think that he would come and do Ganga arthi around our jacuzzi? Like if you bring, if you bring some Ganga water, could you, could you ask Swamiji to do a Ganga Arthi at our jacuzzi? So just little things like this but they show you the way that my parents even were so touched and transformed being here by the arthi, by the prayers, that they're ready and excited to get Swamiji doing a, a prayer ceremony around the jacuzzi in their backyard.
0: Yeah, I love how you, you talked about how uh, Jib is your dad's name, right?
1: No, Jim was the was the ex-husband's name. My oh, dad's name sorry.
0: is Frank. Frank, Frank. I'm sorry. Confusing. That's okay. uh, so fr- I, Frank said uh, something along the lines of, you're batting a thousand, kid. <laughs> you know, yes. how, why would I question you? Um, so that that was sweet. There, He's there was.
1: He's really
0: amazing. Um, the, I, I just I love how you describe. And, and there was another moment when uh, he adopted you. You were already 19 and he adopted. There There's so many touching moments uh that was significant too because of the name that you were given once you were in India. Um so there was that significance. You understood what it means to be given a new name.
1: Absolutely when he had because you know he had adopted me obviously from early childhood. He was with my mom since I was seven and had been all things dad. Mm. Um, we did the official adoption when I became 19 for a variety of just logistic reasons that had nothing to do with the depth of the relationship, which was already father-daughter. But yeah, what I, what I learned first then and then again, 10 years later at 29, when I officially took sannyas, vows of renunciation was the power of a name. That at 19, I had just changed my last name. And then at 29, when I was given Sadvi Bhagwati Saraswati, the power of a name, the power of that whole self-identity, it's really, really very powerful.
0: So I know we're running uh, kind of short on time, but since, you know, we're talking about it, could you share what your name means and the significance to you?
1: Sure. Well, sadhvi is it's more like a title so if you could imagine that i were sister mary of such and such a place Sadvi would be the equivalent of sister it's the title given to female monastics so men are swami and women can be either swamini or Sadvi, and I chose, I chose sadhvi, you could go either way. The Saraswati is the family lineage name. So that would be the equivalent of sister Mary of such and such a place. The such and such a place would be the Saraswati part. So my guru is Swami Chidanand Saraswati. His guru was Swami Dharmanand Saraswati. Everybody in our lineage is going to be either Swami something Saraswati or Sadvi or Swamini something Saraswati. The Bhagavati is the given name that would be like Mary in the Sister Mary, and that's the part that gets selected and chosen. And Bhagavati means the divine feminine. It's the the goddess it's the it's the literal female of the word god or of the word the divine and so yeah it was a very a very powerful a very precious initiation it wasn't just a ceremony and a name it was really an initiation on all levels
0: wow. Um I I keep on stumbling over a concept and I I don't know if we have time for it now. Maybe I can uh, beg you to come back sometime.
1: I would be happy.
0: But this, so let me just tease this. And if if you'd like to talk about it now we can, but I, I honestly think it's a bigger concept to really tackle at the moment. That is in Jewish theology that I studied and now my Christian theology I appreciate and understand the divine, and even say in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in me. But the divine is a distinct entity from me as a creature. And it sounds that as you're talking, the lines are much more blurry there uh, in terms of the distinction between the creator and the creature. Is that? Is that fair to say am I reading that right?
1: Absolutely. There there are no lines. There are no lines. There's a a beautiful beautiful mantra that The English of it, well, the Sanskrit of it says, Purnamada, Purnamitam, Purnat, Purnamudachate, Purnasya, Purnamadaya, Purnameva Vashishyate. What it means is that, the capital T that, is infinite. Whole, full, complete, infinite. This, which has been removed from, created by, created out of that, is also, therefore, full, complete, whole, infinite. That which remains is still infinite, and this over here is infinite. And it's the spiritual equivalent really of the mathematical idea of infinity. I mean, if you say infinity minus 10.
0: It's still infinity. Infinity. Yeah.
1: Right. Infinity divided by 7 billion, infinity. And so as we are created by infinity, the nature of who we are is infinite. Not the body, of course, but the soul, the spirit. That capital T truth of who we are is the qualities of the divine. Whole, full, infinite, love, truth. Those are the core qualities of us. But I think I think that you're right that this would be a really... A beautiful concept to go into in a really deeper and longer way. In its own its own section or segment. Sure. Or,
0: well, yeah. in the time we have left, I, I just have a couple more questions. I would like to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, I the groundwork and the grand work. You're doing so much good in the world. So I'd love to hear a little bit about and share with our our, our friends here uh, what, what y'all are doing.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah. You know, for us, service is really a spiritual practice. It's not about we are the ones who have more and these are the people who have less. And so as good humanitarians, we are, you know, doing something for them. It's really a spiritual practice. And it's a practice that says, when I meditate, I have an experience of oneness with the world. I have an experience of the border and boundary between me and the world melting. And then when I stand up from my meditation, my actions now are informed by rooted in, anchored in that same truth. And so we serve, not because they over there are poor, but because they are us. And so we do a whole variety of charitable humanitarian service you mentioned two of our major foundations in the beginning the divine shakti foundation which is dedicated to women and children we run a lot of free schools education programs women's empowerment and vocational training programs and we're doing a lot around empowering them, uplifting them, giving them opportunities and training ranging from sewing and tailoring and handicrafts and beautician to computers and English and so much in between. So programs for kids, free programs for kids in school, free programs for women and We also do a lot of work through our Global Interfaith Wash Alliance, which is dedicated to water, sanitation and hygiene, but also that has expanded to include bigger areas of climate change and the environment in general. I mean, water is inextricably linked to Climate to the environment. And so our work for water has taken us into a lot of other areas as well around climate and the environment. And as you mentioned, the ground level and the ground level. So the ground level is really the we're building schools, we are building centers for women, we are planting trees, we are cleaning water bodies, we are giving free water filtration systems, we are building toilets, we are teaching people to build toilets. We've got a World Toilet College that trains people to build toilets and to be what we call Swachatakranthakadis, the ambassadors of cleanliness. Um, When we started, more than half of India's population was defecating in the open, over 600 million people. And due to that, about 1600 kids a day under the age of five were dying, simply due to the lack of clean water sanitation and hygiene due to this open defecation. So we we did all of this on the ground work, community mobilization. We've got these big trucks that are wash on wheels that were obviously pre-COVID, going into all of the different communities and doing big stage shows and entertainment programs, teaching people about why toilets are important, why you should use them. But then of course we've used them for ending child marriage as well and then for menstrual hygiene. And then of course COVID happened and we weren't able to uh, do that kind in the big communities. Although now that things are much better, we're really looking forward to starting that up again as well. So all of the on the ground work are the centers that were building that we're starting, the provisions that we're making, the work in the communities. But then we also work on what we call the grand level, which is really about changing how people think and therefore how they live. And so it's one thing to, for example, build toilets or train people to build them. It's another thing to convince people that actually open defecation is something we need to end. It's one thing to teach menstrual hygiene education in a school and in a women's program and to bring in training for them to learn how to sew their own eco-friendly menstrual pads. But it's a whole other thing to change the way that society thinks about menstruation to change the way society thinks about women and girls so that girls can stop having to stay home when they're menstruating and they can actually stop having to drop out of school, which is what ends up happening here. They miss enough days of school, enough months in a row. And unless they are really, really, really academically inclined, they end up dropping out of school. We've got about a 23, 24% drop out of school rate of girls when they start menstruating, simply because they don't know how to properly take care of themselves, simply because the supplies are not available, simply because their schools don't have toilets or the toilets don't have doors. So there's no privacy. So as one Spiritual based, faith based, charitable organization, there's only so much we can do on the ground. But on the ground level, if we can bring on big, big stages, big, big events, all of the different leaders together in programs that then end up being, you know, televised live on TV and all over social media with thousands and thousands in the audience we're starting social revolutions. And we did it with ending open defecation. We are in the midst of doing it for menstruation and for aspects of, again, the environment, pollution, climate change, water. And so we really we really try to harness that as well. And of course, lastly, the grand level also implies our work on policy We work with the government from local level to state to central, really helping to bring in new policies that are in alignment with a healthy and sustainable country and world.
0: It is remarkable that, you know, just as I go through the pictures and read that, we're talking about toilets and menstruation but the grand level is you've met with numerous heads of state, the head and work with the UN and the Dalai Lama, and it's really amazing and everything in between. So I feel like I've only just scratched the surface and look forward to learning a lot more about you and the work that you're doing. Um, I I almost feel weird asking if you have any questions for me, but I I do wanna give you that opportunity.
1: You're, you're so sweet. I don't have any questions at the moment, but I certainly look forward to meeting you when I'm in LA.
0: Oh man. Well, our mutual friend Dawn Bailey has been one of the best, uh, parts of we've known of each other for 20 years or more, but we only became really, really good friends at the beginning, uh, right around the beginning of the pandemic, actually just before we were working on an initiative, the pandemic happened and then uh, we became pretty close. We were working on a, a, a nonprofit together. So yes, she's wonderful. we'll have to, uh, it'll be nice to be in person. Uh, but before you go, if you could share more information about how we can find you and all the great work that you're doing, uh, please let us know.
1: Sure. Well, I'm assuming also that you're going to give this in writing to people.
0: I'll include URLs in the in the show notes and all that Perfect. good stuff.
1: So I don't have to do too much spelling out loud. But the easiest place to go is probably just my website, which is sadviji.org S-A-D-H-V-I-J-I dot org. And that'll give you links to our amazing ashram here in Rishikesh, Parmarth Nikithan. It'll give you links to Divine Shakti Foundation, to Global Interfaith Wash Alliance, to our international yoga festival that we host every year here at the ashram. And you could also, if they want to go directly to learning about my memoir about Hollywood to the Himalayas or Hollywood to the Himalayas, as we say here, they can go to Hollywood to the Himalayas.com. It's its own website, it's all one word, Hollywood to the Himalayas.com, and can download some chapters and or they could just go straight to Amazon and search for Hollywood to the Himalayas and get it. And the last piece that I'd love to mention is just that everybody who's listening, if coming to India, if being in an ashram, in the lap of the Himalayas, on the banks of Ganga is something that touches you and excites you. You should know that you are always welcome to come here and we have Almost a thousand rooms. So plenty of space. Bring your family. And I look so forward to continuing this, this beautiful conversation and to staying connected.
0: Sadviji, it is such a thrill for me to get to have this conversation with you. I've been diving into your work here for the last several weeks. And I feel it's just the beginning of something I didn't share before, but one of the reasons that Dawn thought it would be good for us to talk is because I finally started a meditation practice about uh, two months ago. I've tried in the past, and I've always had that um, squirrel brain that it it was sort of an obstacle for me. But for whatever reason, about two months ago, three people that I love very, very dearly, in addition to Dawn, who uh, gently pointed me in this direction over the last couple of years. And um, it's something that I've incorporated into uh, my daily life. So it is such a, it's such a gift. Anyway, I've taken so much of your time already.
1: Well, that's another thing we can talk about next time.
0: Next time. Next time. Thank you so much. It's really great getting to know you personally. And I hope it's the beginning of something that we'll be talking again, many more times. So thanks again.
1: Absolutely. I look so forward to it, Corey. Thank you so much for this, this beautiful opportunity. And I look forward to connecting with your your community as well they can of course as well I neglected to mention this but they can of course also find me on social media and there's videos and links to all sorts of more topics and meditations as well we do a lot of uh, beautiful meditation videos that if people are looking to start their own meditation practice they can find a lot of those on uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all of those fun places that we're able to connect and share.
0: Oh, I've been diving into that. Every day I get my notifications when you're live on Facebook, so it's it's good stuff. So uh, thanks again. So much um,
1: love to you, so, so much love.
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the end spelled out, A-N-D. politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at tpandrpod. You know, tpandrpod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on but mostly we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.